2: i'm steve mold i'm matt parker
3: i'm helen arney and this is a podcast of unnecessary detail
2: and you know what they say come for the podcast stay for the unnecessary detail
1: yeah that's actually where that expression comes from Anyway, what you're listening to right now is the final episode of Series 1, and our topic shall be transmission.
3: I've been listening to some creatures communicating.
1: I'm talking about the transmission of life itself. And I'm looking at spacecraft transmissions. We shall commence, however, with Steve.
2: Yes, I'm talking about transmission in the sense of life, transmitting life from one place to another. If you're a plant, you're kind of stuck where you are. So how do you transmit life? How do you transmit yourself? You do it by generations. The next generation, you want to get it far away from you. It's a bit like, you know, you've got to move away from your parents. Otherwise, they're going to suffocate you. (laughs) You know what
1: I mean? You're um, saying this very earnestly. Aren't you?
2: No, see, no, it's not true of my parents. But um, <laughs> if you, the, the point is... I mean, I'm in a whole different hemisphere to <laughs> my parents. <so. laughs> I'm all worried about my kids, actually. They just need to get away from us. Um, so, you know, if you're a plant and you just kind of drop your seeds on the ground, they're going to be competing for resources with you and, and sunlight. So how do you get your seeds around? There's loads of these different mechanisms for taking seeds away from the the parent plant. And I've just collected some of my favorite unusual mechanisms. Traditionally, an apple falling, the distance from a tree is not far. (laughs) (laughs) Apples don't fall far from the tree. That is is correct. Um, But moving away from metaphors for a moment... There are loads of well-known seed dispersal mechanisms. For example, the apple, it's not supposed to just fall to the ground. The idea is that the seeds are transported in the belly of an animal. So uh, an animal eats the apple, including the seeds. The seeds are made in such a way that they can survive the journey through the gut. And then they're deposited on the ground in their own little fresh pile of manure. So it's very clever. It's a good system.
3: So it's got its, its own fertilizer, it's fertilized. It? It's there. Yeah.
2: It's already there. Yeah. So fruit is one mechanism for seed dispersal. Dandelions, you know, that's air dispersal. Sycamore seeds, those helicopter things that that uh, spin as they fall to the ground. It gives them time in the air so that it can be caught by a gust of wind and taken away from the the host. Uh, to um, the host? No, the no. parent. They can be taken away from the parent. <laughs>
3: wow, uh, this is your own attitude to parenting coming yeah, out here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So if you're the host, who's the parasite?
0: Yeah, this yeah, my kids. So worrying.
2: My kids, let's be very clear. My children are parasites. No, I love them very much um, in in a way. Uh, so um, coconuts are an interesting example of seed dispersal, right? They're, they're like nautical seed dispersal because huh? they float. <gasps> they, they make their way around... Oh. Of
3: course they do. They can travel
2: travel continents. They can go from one continent to another. It's amazing. You get these uh, ballistic examples of seed dispersal. No. Yes. Explosive. Yeah. (laughs) I remember this as a kid going on holidays and being in the countryside. You'd be sitting next to this bush and it's sort of crackling away. It's crackling because these dried out seed pods are snapping and firing seeds out. Um, there's, a, there's a tree called the dynamite tree. It's probably the best example of ballistic seed dispersal.
3: It sounds like it. Yeah. yeah.
2: It's the, the bark of the tree is covered in these seed pods. And you can actually be injured if you're standing close to them when one goes off. Because they're, they're incredibly fast. They can go tens of meters. Where do they grow? It's in the Amazon Oh, <laughs> as if that wasn't scary enough. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, but like,
3: so have Amazon attempted distribution by explosion? Yeah. <laughs> is, that, is that a business plan? Yeah. Incoming. <laughs> yeah.
1: Bezos is getting into a ballistic uh, yeah, industry. Yeah.
3: If the drones don't work out, let's try rockets.
2: Even within the seed dispersal mechanisms that we're familiar with, like fruit, there's some really weird examples. So uh, Tumbleweed. Is a a form of seed dispersal. So when you see a tumbleweed rolling across the landscape, that's a seed being dispersed. What? Wow.
3: Those awkward moments in movies are actually a blissful distribution of life force. That's exactly right. you should be cheering.
2: Just be aware that every time someone makes a bad joke, it's spreading a weed uh, (laughs) around the world. What I really want to get into is some plants that are really selective about the animals that they use for dispersal. For example, the chili. And I'm going to anthropomorphize the chili here. So the chili doesn't want to be eaten by mammals. It only wants to be eaten by birds. So a chili... If it goes into a mammal's mouth, it's going to get masticated. It's going to destroy those seeds. The seeds are going to be even further destroyed in the gut of the animal. Whereas the same thing doesn't happen with birds. The birds don't chew the seeds and the seeds can survive that passage through the bird's gut. So the capsaicin, that's the molecule inside the chili that hijacks our pain receptor mechanisms. That's what makes a chili feel hot and painful it makes you think you're in pain yeah you feel the pain yes but there's
1: nothing other than your body's reaction to the pain like if you go into shock that's obviously an issue
2: but you're not actually in any direct danger no Um, so but you you know you'll still have the local swelling and and things like that
3: and that's what makes it so enjoyable right
2: well for some people yeah (laughs) because you get a hit of endorphins or something like that but the idea is that it's supposed to be a deterrent to mammals and and mostly it is
3: so we're doing chilies wrong
2: We're doing chilies wrong because humans are weird. Most mammals would have a go at tasting the chili and go, no, I'm not interested. That's deeply unpleasant.
3: And the chili goes, yay! Yes. In Uh, your anthropomorphized world. Yes, exactly right.
2: (laughs) Birds' pain receptors are different to human pain receptors. And the capsaicin doesn't work on birds. So birds can safely eat chilies.
3: Is this why birds don't like Nando's?
2: Um, I mean, there's I, several reasons. I don't, I, I don't think it's why chickens don't like Nando's. <laughs>
3: okay. Steve, there's clearly so many of these. What are your top three seed transmission details?
2: All right. So I'm going to put acorn in this category.
3: In number three. The acorn.
2: So you might know that the oak tree relies on squirrels to bury their acorns to save them for later.
1: I'm okay with you anthropomorphizing squirrels.
2: Okay. Because
1: they are cheeky little squirrels. <laughs> they are, aren't they? So I'm okay with that.
2: <laughs> so they bury their acorns to save for later. Some of them are forgetful and they can't remember where they put them. Those are the ones that grow into new acorn trees. I know that because I have an acorn tree at the back of my yard.
1: And I can, when I'm writing in my study, I can watch squirrels and they're just burying them everywhere and they yeah. are not keeping track. Yeah. <laughs> At all. And occasionally you'll get a tree just growing in
2: the middle of the lawn. Yeah. So here's the thing though. What if the squirrels generally do remember most of the time where the acorns are? So the acorn tree has another trick up its sleeve. Okay,
3: now anthropomorphizing trees as having sleeves is now a step too far, (laughs) even for me.
1: Okay.
2: <laughs> okay. Um, so this is how it works. An acorn tree maybe produces a, around a hundred acorns, and that's enough pretty much for one squirrel. So you tend to have one squirrel per acorn tree. And so what the acorn tree does occasionally, once in several years, is just to make a thousand acorns. Wow. It's way more than that one squirrel needs. So the squirrel's just burying these a- everywhere. The squirrel still gives it a go. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, oh my God, I can't believe there's all these acorns. I'm uh, having You know, putting <laughs> okay, all these holes <laughs> and it's never going to get back to all of them. So you're guaranteed on those years that there will be acorns left in the ground. But
1: it couldn't always do that because then just more squirrels would move in.
2: Yeah, if it kept making a thousand acorns, you just get more squirrels per tree. So it's got
1: to keep the squirrel numbers down. Yeah. And occasionally flood the market.
2: Yeah, so there's two reasons not to make a, a thousand acorns every year. <laughs> one is you just run out of nutrients. Yeah. But the other is you, you only want one squirrel on your tree. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So acorns using the forgetfulness of squirrels. That's one.
3: In at number two
2: <laughs> forest fires. Trees that disperse seeds via forest fire. So whenever there's a forest fire, and they do happen naturally, it's not just, you know, man-made mistakes. It clears out this area. You've got all this sunlight available, all these nutrients available. Whoever can get there first with their seeds are gonna have a great time. So you have these pine trees like the lodgepole pine that keeps the pine cone closed. It's the pine cone that has the seeds inside it. Those pine cones are sealed shut with solid resin. And when there's a forest fire, it melts the resin. The pine cones open up and the seeds drop down. They're the very first pine trees to appear after a forest fire.
1: They're first to market.
2: First to market. So
3: they're designed for post-apocalyptic situations.
2: Yeah.
1: I remember a forest fire came through when I was a kid living in Western Australia, early 90s from my grandparents' farm. And afterwards we went out there and it was just like black and blank. You could see for, for, well... For kilometers because we have the metric system in australia and um uh, we went back out not that long afterwards and it was amazing how many green things were springing up everywhere mm. yeah. and there are quite a few australian trees and etc that only seed if there has been a fire so wow. um the bankshire i'm pretty sure the bankshire is one it's actually it's got cones and there are these really clamped shut beak looking things that hold the seeds in I think in a fire, they then pop open, wow. like you were saying. Yeah, it's, so you-
2: it's not only pine cones that do this. It's called serotony, which huh. is it's actually a general term for seed release that is triggered by some event, but it's generally used specifically for fire as an event. So there's oh. no
1: extra effort to get the seed any distance. It's just timing when it transmits them.
2: Yeah.
3: So these trees don't have an advantage in years that there is no fire. No. But I guess that's fine because trees last a long time. They're not trying to regenerate every single year like a smaller plant. So yeah. they're happy to wait until there's a forest fire, which knocks out their predecessors, which means the next generation can come in.
2: Yeah. So that's my number two seed dispersal triggered by fire.
3: Number one the ultimate transmission
2: cashew nuts.
3: Ooh. Yeah. Oh, we've actually got cool. a bag of cashew nuts on the table.
2: Dry roasted, my yep. favourite. <laughs> a cashew nut isn't a nut, it's a seed. And it has a fruit, but it doesn't work in the way that normal seeds in fruit work. It doesn't go through the animal's body. Actually, the cashew nut sits on the outside of the fruit. It's called a cashew apple. So this is big old fruit with a cashew nut stuck to the outside of like it. Like a hat. Like a little hat. What? Yeah. The idea is that a fruit bat comes along to eat the apple but it would take ages to just sit there and eat the apple it's not going to do that it's going to take the whole fruit away including the cashew nut to eat somewhere else where it's safe And it then throws away the cashew nut at the end. Because actually the cashew nut, it wouldn't be able to eat because it's got this hard shell. Underneath the hard shell, it's got this noxious chemical. So the animal that eats the fruit has to take it away somewhere to eat it and then drops the seed somewhere else. So the tree's like, hey, bat,
1: here's some fruit.
2: Come and get it. Oh, why are you here? I mean,
1: you're making the trip anyway. Yeah. (laughs) Do you mind just take this seed thing with you? I've saved you the effort. I've not hidden it in the fruit. I'm a more upfront kind of tree. Just take it with you and then leave it somewhere.
3: Who's anthropomorphizing? (laughs) She had a real change of heart.
1: (laughs) I don't think you were doing it enough. That was my issue.
3: So instead of transmission by poop, this is transmission by what on earth is that on my apple? Let me throw that in the bin.
2: Yes. Wow. Do we need yeah. the apple? So, a cashew apple is very delicate. If you try to transport it any distance, it would end up a mush. So, they are used locally. So, where you get cashew growers, they might use the apples for cooking or they might feed it to livestock or something like that. So, it doesn't go to waste. But I just, this is why I love this one. I find it remarkable. Next time you're holding a bag of cashew nuts, just imagine how big that bag would have to be if it also contained all the apples. <laughs>
3: So we are eating the dry roasted waste product of a cashew
2: apple. The hat. (laughs) The hat. We're eating the hat.
3: (laughs) Number one, (laughs) the wasteful cashew apple hat.
2: (laughs) This is a podcast of unnecessary detail, part of the A-Cash Creator Network.
3: Matt Parker, what are you transmitting in this episode?
2: So, it
1: is a matter of public record. I'm a big fan of error correcting codes. And I am all... That's true! Um, There's a video online... Stop laughing. In actually our first ever spoken nerd tour show, I did my barcode trick. And there's a video online where I taught myself to calculate a missing digit from a barcode. As an example of how you can have error detection in transmission of data. And, and you I
3: still get invited to all the cool parties. I genuinely,
1: <laughs> it comes up more often than you'd expect. Yeah. I've done it on live TV now. There's a video online of me doing it at the Hamas. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's good fun. But I can also do the same trick with a bank card. However, very few people will read their bank card numbers out in front of hundreds of other people in an audience. And so I never get to do that trick. No. And so I thought, given this is audio only, I can safely do the trick here and do the calculation on a bank card. So has anyone got a bank card they're prepared to um
2: Say out sure. loud. Yeah. On um, a podcast. No. Hold
1: up. Actually, have, have you, Helen?
2: Have you got No. A card? Well,
3: I've got a festival of the spoken nerd corporate card. Oh my goodness. Business account.
2: I
1: never know. I haven't got one of them. Yeah,
3: I know. I don't let you have one. Oh, goodness. Um, as as this expires. <laughs> Makes next, sense. This one expires next month, so I think you'll be fine. Okay, uh,
1: okay, okay, okay. So, what's the first digit? It's a four. Four. It's a Visa card. <gasps> magic okay no, so, wow. okay no so the first one or two digits tells you who the bank is that or whatever the the, the card type it is
3: tells me you're a wizard uh,
1: if it's a five it's mastercard <laughs> okay uh, so and so the rest of the digits apart from the last one are your actual bank card number and they're arbitrary they're just whatever's been assigned to you mm-hmm. and then the last one is the check digit which I'll explain in a moment but first <laughs> the the grand performance uh, sorry, So the <laughs> first digit was a four yeah so what i'm doing in my head i'm getting the four i've got to double that uh and that gives me eight okay so far so good and then i'm going to start adding and doubling as i add every second one so that is then uh, a five it's six three i am keeping track of if i have to double or not nine four i think it's a six.
3: Oh my gosh is it going to be sex? I'm going to reveal it. It is a sex. Yes. Oh,
1: that's way harder than I expected. Because <laughs> uh, I've never done this one like with an audience. So, if you want to get any bank card and have a look at it, you need to double every second digit. So you double the first one, you double the third one, double the fifth one, every single single one. But if you double it and you get a two-digit number, you have to add the two digits together. So whenever ah. I see a 7, I double it to 14, but then add the 1 and 4 to get 5. And then I add that to the running total. Right. And the in-between ones, you just add what the digit is. And this was actually invented not for bank cards at all. This was invented in 1960 by a guy called could learn, who did it for tracking stock in factories. They actually made a mechanical stamp where you could put in your code, your number for any part or process, and the mechanics inside it would work out what digit on the end would complete that pattern, and then you could stamp the entire code onto a box. You could also enter in a complete code, and it would either stamp like a tick or a cross, depending on if it was a valid value or not. Because even ignoring the mathematics behind it, Because one whole digit is just there to complete this weird pattern, it actually means we only use one-tenth of all possible 16-digit numbers as bank card numbers. So it means if you get one at random, there's a 9 in 10 chance it's not a valid number.
3: Because it's really only a 15-digit number. Yes. With a check digit on the the end.
1: Yeah. And so it means because we're being deliberately inefficient. So like phone numbers, in theory, every single phone number could be a valid phone number. So they're very efficient. We use them all. Bank cards were deliberately inefficient because then when you're on a website and you type in your bank card number, you know, it instantly says, this is wrong.
0: And it's
1: it's not checked with the bank or anything. It's just done the check, to see if it's a valid number. And it knows if it gets one of the nine tenths of numbers that aren't valid, you've entered it wrong. And if it's a valid, it's correct. They go, well, statistically, I mean, you'd have to make more than one mistake to accidentally get a correct different card. So we want to be inefficient, but we want them to be spaced out. So you can't accidentally make a mistake and turn it into another valid one. And that's where some more very clever math starts to come in. And so I think this is amazing. The downside to bank cards is that you can't fix the mistake. You can only say if it's a valid bank card or not.
3: So actually, that's not error correction then?
1: No, error detection. Oh. And that's fine if you can then say, oh, sorry, that was wrong. Can you say it again? But if you're transmitting data and there's no second chance. Yeah. You can't say, "Oops, that was wrong, send it again. You've got to be able to detect and correct the mistake. And that's where error correction comes in. So I was like, well, what, what's a particularly interesting use of this? And um, I thought spacecraft, everyone likes space, will do that. And I looked into the Voyager missions. Uh, these went past Jupiter and Saturn and eventually out of the solar system. And when they were launched in the 70s, the technology wasn't that great. And they had to limit the amount of mass. So you've got two issues. One issue is as they're doing these flybys, they can't stop. They can't slow down and take a photo of Jupiter and then make sure it's okay and then carry on. They're just going to zip straight past. So they take a photo as they go, but also they haven't got enough memory on board to store that data. They're pretty much getting it and then transmitting it back to Earth.
3: Yeah, it's not like you can go pick up a USB stick off Voyager.
1: Exactly. And it's <laughs> not like you can even get it transmitted again, right? No. It just it just takes it and dumps it and whoa, sends it back. Whoa,
3: whoa. So it didn't even have enough memory to store nope. what it was taking it's, it's pictures of. It's not even of. stored locally.
1: <gasps> it, so it's a one-time attempt. Later missions like New Horizons going past Pluto, that would take a whole load of data and then spend forever afterwards gradually sending it back down to Earth. But with the Voyager missions, it was just capture and send.
2: Is that because data storage is denser now than it was back then? Denser and lighter. Yeah.
1: And the other issue is you're going to get a lot of noise in space. And the way you could fix that is by having a more powerful transmission to make it easier to pick up at Earth. But that means you need a bigger antenna, which is more mass, and you need more power. So you're using up more of your fuel, or you've got more batteries, or you've got, and these are things you've got to limit in spacecraft. You want to yeah. launch as little mass as possible, and you want to use as little power as possible when it's running. So the pressure was to send the weakest signal possible but that means you're going to get mistakes. But by using clever math, it doesn't matter that you're going to get errors in the transmission because we can fix them at the other end. And the kind of the crude way of doing that would be something like, like with seeds, right? Because a, a tree or whatever just sends out as many seeds as possible because it doesn't know what's going to happen to them. I can't check in on them. It just sends loads. Yeah. And so you could do, if you want to send like a one or a zero, in binary code from a spacecraft, you could, instead of just sending one, you could send one, 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 like send it four times in a row. Because then if we receive it and we get one, one, zero, one, we're like, oh, that should have been four ones, but one of them was corrupted. Mm. We can fix it. It should have been a one. But then if you get like one, zero, one, zero, you're like, I don't know what that should have been. Was Was that four zeros with two mistakes or was it four ones with two mistakes? So then you're like, okay, we'll send like five or six ones. But now it's hugely inefficient. So what they actually did was use maths so you can reduce the amount of repetition you need to still be able to correct up to three mistakes for the case of Voyager. So what they did uh, was they used something called a Golay code, which I absolutely love. The way a Golay code works is it's all in binary. You take 12 bits of binary information, 12 ones and zeros, and they can be whatever you want. That's your actual data. But for every conceivable string of 12 ones and zeros, there is a predetermined matching additional 12 ones and zeros that you put on the end. And so you double the size of data you've got to transmit, which is not bad in the scheme of things. It's not ideal, but it's not like you're sending every single thing five or six times. Yeah. You're just sending twice as much. And that total string of 24 ones and zeros, when we receive it, we can correct up to three mistakes and you can detect up to seven mistakes because those extra 12 have been chosen in such a way that every 24-digit string requires a minimum of eight changes to become any other valid code word string of 24 ones and zeros. And at this point, the math behind that is just insane. Wow. It's using group theory for people who are curious. And because you're sending a binary number that's twice as long, there are actually 4,096 12-digit binary strings, but there are over 24 digit binary <gasps> strings. So only one 4,000th of all possible strings of binary that long are valid code words. So they're very sparse, they're spread all out. But all the ones in between, if we get any of those, we know something's gone wrong and enough of them are close enough to valid ones that we can then correct it. And so I think it's so clever. It's it's incredibly abstract. Like, when people first developed group theory and higher dimensional geometries, they weren't thinking this will be useful for spacecraft in a few centuries, right? Just ridiculously theoretical mathematics. Uh, but because of it, we've got our first ever images. And it's not entirely dissimilar to something like the phonetic alphabet, where instead of just saying A, yeah. you say alpha, because there's, it's a longer, more complex word. Ah. It's chosen to be distinct from all the other longer, more complex words we use for the rest of the alphabet. Yeah. So if a little bit of the transmission is garbled or lost, you'd get enough to go, oh, that was probably alpha. Yeah. It sounds a lot different to bravo and, and so on. Yeah. So it, it's it's a more theoretical version of that.
3: Well, the more difficult one is, is it bravo or delta? Is it but or duh? They're so yeah. similar. But
1: and duh, very similar. Yeah. Bravo, delta, very different. Oh, I get it! One tiny extra point is actually the 23-digit version is the perfect version. And so the original theory showed that if you take this certain um, group from group theory and you use it to do this and you can generate the vector field, blah, 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 then you have absolute efficiency. Every single possible code word in the space is being used. It's just absolutely perfect. But computers... things in groups of eight and 23 (laughs) is one short and so they just went you know what let's put what's called a parity bit on the end.
3: Because your anthropomorphized computer doesn't like the number 23.
1: Exactly. No, it literally doesn't. <laughs> no, computer programmers don't like the number 23. Okay. And you, you can anthropomorphize some computer programmers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, they're just machines. <laughs> for the most part. And so by adding on that extra bit on the end, all we do is if the other 23, which are the perfect mathematically precise ones, if there's an odd number of ones... We put an extra one on to make it an even number of ones. If it's already an even number of ones, we leave it as a zero at the end. And so the 24-digit version is not quite as beautifully perfect, but for all practical purposes, it's amazing. And so that, that's what the spacecraft were using.
2: Because that bit was going spare in the computer anyway, so you might as well use it.
1: Exactly. It was going to be a blank spot because you were going to assign three bytes anyway. And so they're just like, yep, yeah, it's fine. Now we have way more complicated codes that do all sorts of error correction, and we use them all the time for digital transmission. But I picked this one because I think the kind of distances we're talking, the Voyager spacecraft are currently the most distant human-made objects away from Earth, and that is the longest transmission we have. And it's done using this Golay code. And it's this amazing bit of mathematics that makes it possible. So that's why I picked this as my transmit example. I think it's old, it's antiquated, but it's still working. And it's the best we've ever done in terms of transmitting over distance.
0: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you
3: My transmission happens under the sea because I would like to go into detail about how whales have different accents.
2: Wales does have a different accent. It's a lovely accent. Oh there. my All goodness.
3: <laughs> it doesn't sound anything In like layers. that though. No, I don't know what street. I was doing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> sperm whales oh.
3: who have different dialects depending on where they are in the ocean and within their social groups, they have different accents and they can recognize each other as individuals from how they sound. The detail of sperm whales is so interesting because they haven't evolved different accents and dialects depending on their geographical area, which is mostly what's happened with other things so for instance hermit thrushes in the east coast of america sound different from the ones in the west coast of america because this big glacier sprung up in the middle two different populations evolved differently on either side so now they sound different they no longer want to mate with each other because they don't think they're the same species
2: that's very small-minded it's like when someone from london goes to scotland yeah
3: (laughs) Yeah, uh, their accent is both a signal of their evolution and a driver of their future evolution, right? Yes. But that's not what I want to talk about with sperm whales because the reason sperm whales have different accents and dialects is because they have chosen to. It is part of their cultural map. So whales are some of the only animals outside of humans that have different cultural groups. And it's really interesting because although there's no technical reason why they can't cross over geographically, they tend not to, and they don't share their dialects with each other. They have distinct groups. So sperm whales don't sing. They only click to use echolocation. They'll do a regular click, and that will be what they use to find food and each other and land masses or whatever.
1: So normal whales sing, sperm whales speak in binary. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's all clicks yeah, and zeros. Yeah, oh, that's they're so that's good. Basically, it. Have when... I gotten encoding for them? <laughs>
3: <laughs> when whales are not busy doing go they have a certain pattern of clicks that they use at certain social and cultural situations. So, when they're returning from a deep dive, or when they're just hanging out together being social, they have a certain pattern of clicks that is unique to their group. And it's called a coder. So the, whenever these sperm whales are clicking in a certain pattern, it's called a coder. And these coders are different. For instance, a Mediterranean sperm whale might go <coughs> with their clicks. Three clicks and then one click. It'll do a three, one click. And a group of sperm whales in the Caribbean might go. <coughs> it will do two clicks and then a set of three clicks. And mean it- the same thing. They don't mean the same thing in the sense of, have you seen Jeff's new haircut? Or <laughs> like, uh, what's for dinner? It's squid again. Hooray. <laughs> it doesn't mean that. It's more like a group chant or like playing music together or like a football oh, chant. Oh, like a bonding. Yes, yeah, a bonding thing. We're so all it's, in this together. We're on the same team.
1: D- You've not been to a lot of football games, <laughs> have you?
3: <laughs> it's more like these patterns that are very unique to certain geographical groups are them saying, hey, we're hanging out together, everything's fine, you're safe. It's their kind of call sign. And researchers have revisited groups of whales five, ten years later, and they're using the same coda. They're using the same homecoming call, even though time has passed. So this is something that's unique to their cultural group. That's absolutely bonkers.
2: And does it survive through generations? So, <laughs> like the next ones to be born, they'll use the same coda.
3: Yep, they will. And this incredibly cute thing happens that when baby whales learn to speak, they do it just like humans. They learn to babble first, so they uh, just do anything. They just go blah blah blah, go all the equivalent, ra- which random is random clicks. Yeah, they just. They just do random, like, pl-
1: like seeds flying off a tree.
3: Yeah, they just <laughs> do whatever, and gradually they learn their group coda.
2: Presumably, there's breeding between the groups; otherwise, all the groups would be inbred. Do they, you know, they? change accent if they move <laughs> around.
3: Well, the thing is, whales have a matriarchal society, so it's all run by women. Women whales. Well, Lady, <laughs> Lady whales. Yeah. yeah. Lady whales. Well, whale women. Um, it's the princess all... of Wales. <laughs> yeah. So it's all run by women and they have calves, obviously, that are male and female whales. But when the males reach adolescence, they basically send them off to the Arctic. Oh. They, they're no longer part of the family group.
1: And is that like when you send off young people to university, yeah. and then they very quickly lose their regional accent <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to blend in? Yeah. I don't know if you've got any experience with this. Oh, I definitely Oh, really?
2: That, yeah. <laughs> Yeah,
3: Yeah. that Geordie accent of yours, Steve Mould. I'm now not
2: allowed back (laughs) in the Northeast.
1: Rightfully so. I hear if they phone their parents, they go straight back into the old click
3: accent. (laughs) (laughs) You should have kept your accent, Steve. It would have made you so much more attractive to (laughs) Caribbean (laughs) whale pods. (laughs) One of the reasons there's been quite a big explosion in understanding of animal dialects is we've been able to analyse all of this data much more easily using artificial intelligence and citizen science. So suddenly... All this data that's been collected over decades can be analysed in a way that produces meaningful results. There's another study to do with pilot whales and killer whales, uh, which are actually species of dolphin. So that's a completely unnecessary detail. Um, And scientists have been collecting all this data. They've got 16,000 recordings of these really complex singing calls. And they've been trying to understand what they mean. And the best way that they've found to do it is to use citizen science right which is a project on the zooniverse website which if you like getting involved in science you should go and look up right now they put some whale song on this website people listen to the whale song which is very relaxing Mm. (laughs) and then if you haven't fallen asleep halfway through you then compare it to other whale song And you mark whether the whale song you first heard is similar to any of these other whale songs that they're playing you. So you basically get to sit and listen to whale song and ticks and boxes for science.
1: And this was the site that started with people looking at like pictures of galaxies. So it's better than computers. Humans can look at it and go, that one's a bit like this one. That one's different.
3: Exactly. There are some things that humans are better at. Than computers. And one of them is identifying whether a galaxy is clockwise or anticlockwise, yeah. and whether a whale song is matching uh, the one you just heard or very different from. Mm. But what this has done, they they had 150,000 matches from 10,000 volunteers, which either means that 10,000 people listened to 15 whale songs each or about 9,000 people (laughs) listened to one whale song each and went, this isn't for me. And all the rest (laughs) just...
1: Really got involved.
3: (laughs) Really, which I imagine would be me, really, really got into it. And so they did all of this data matching. And at that point you can use it to train artificial oh, that's intelligence your training data
1: for machine learning. Yeah. Oh. Because then
3: you've got something for your artificial intelligence model to actually
2: learn from. Learn, learn from. from.
3: Yeah. They have found some kind of common language that has different dialects across these world groups, which is fascinating and amazing and wouldn't have been possible without citizen science and artificial intelligence and all of this research.
2: We should enjoy this website while we can. Yeah. It's not gonna be long, is it, before actually the computer is better at all yeah. at all the things.
3: Well, sadly, Whale FM, as this Whale
2: is that FM what it's called? Yes, as
3: this project was called. Whale FM is now finished, so you can no longer contribute to this project. But do not worry. Because Zooniverse has recently launched Manatee Chat.
2: (laughs) Oh, Yep. Manatee Chat. It sounds like a dating app. It does. For manatees. Manatees.
3: (laughs) Well, it kind of is. (laughs) So, manatees, sea cows, have really complex calls and no one's really looked into them. So they want people to identify which calls match up and some of them are going to be mating calls. Yeah. So they yeah, they're going to find it out and then they're going to feed it into deep learning models and then they can use that data to analyze recordings and also do live data analysis so they can actually translate manatees in real time
2: and to help manatees find love.
3: Yeah, they could help manatees find love <laughs> or at the very least they can stop manatees being hit by boats. Oh.
1: Yeah. Yeah. BBC Cow Radio.
2: It's the best <laughs> I can do at short notice. It's... <laughs>
3: <laughs> Which means it was still really poor.
2: <laughs> well... There you go. That's it. We've made it to the end of series one, or as we like to call it, our F-I-R-S-T transmission. Thanks for listening.
3: As always, there are show notes at com slash podcast. Steve has found some pictures of the truly bizarre cashew apple, if you want to see that. And I've found some audio of sperm whale coders. And there's links to Zooniverse, Citizen Science Projects, Whale FM and obviously Manatee Chat.
2: Manatee Chat. Whereas I have found an old video
1: of me doing the barcode trick at the Hammersmith Apollo in front of approximately 3.5 kilo people. We've also got more about Golay codes, including the generator matrix for the binary extended version of the Golay code that we tried to describe it was by someone online who goes by Life of Riley that's
3: right uh, we would love you to spread the nerd about these podcasts however you can uh, the more people who listen the more of these we can make and we will uh, if you want to get in touch we're on all the social media and podcast at festival of the spoken is our email
2: we make other stuff together as well as festival of the spoken Nerd, For example, uh, recordings of three big spangly live science comedy specials that are downloadable in glorious HD for just pi pounds each. Go to festivalofthespokennerd.com forward slash shop for those. You can go to all the usual places. It's available on iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, stuff like that. You can also get all our books. You can get podcasts of unnecessary detail t-shirts from the same place as well. And you also get hat and songs like the one you're about to hear at the end of this podcast.
3: Ah, uh, Yes, um, I have created a new special version of one of my songs for this podcast it's my song about the philae lander right does everyone remember this from a few years ago uh this tiny box of electronics that um basically landed on a on a comet
2: well the one that tried to land on a comet yeah It bounced a few times, didn't it?
3: (laughs) Yeah, it crashed on a comet. Uh, Everyone got very excited and treated it like it was actually alive because it was such a beautiful story. Um, I wrote this song for the BBC radio show, More or Less, and it's essentially about transmitting data, right? But doing it using technology from a decade before it tried to transmit that data, right? Because the journey took so long. It's like trying to do science through a series of text messages (laughs) on an old Nokia phone. Uh, So if you want to hear that in a new version, uh, it's after the credits. Just keep listening and it's
1: all there. Although, quick question, Helen. First of all, transmission, good link. (laughs) However, didn't we discuss (laughs) 67P... Actually, like, in a previous episode?
3: Uh, yeah, w- uh, we did. But I've been sort of busy uh, because I've spent the last nine months growing a baby. Oh. Um, so <laughs> I, did, I didn't finish the recording in time for the interstellar podcast so you got it on this
1: one
2: you prioritize the baby yeah yeah excuses (laughs) excuses but actually it also means that it'll be a while before we're back with another series because we have to train up helen's new baby in podcast production techniques but we're working on some bonus episodes to feed your appetite for unnecessary detail in the meantime so stay subscribed and we'll catch up soon
1: thanks again for listening and goodbye Bye -bye. bye bye A podcast of unnecessary detail is made by Festival of the Spoken Nerd. That's Helen Arnie, Steve Mould, and this guy, Matt Parker. The music you're listening to is by Howard Carter. It's pretty good. our design is by Adam Robinson. And the producer who produces this production is John Harvey. Thanks to you for listening.
3: You left earth 16 years ago. In search of distant comet, then 2014's headline news was that you landed on it. We knew that there was something wrong when we saw your battery. Thank Newton, you weren't running Apple's eye technology. So now I sing a lullaby and I dedicate to thee The bravest little fridge-sized probe in all the galaxy Sleep well, little filet. you fulfilled your destiny Four billion miles on the clock to do a science on a rock your jump down from rosetta it was so good you jumped again and again we low gravity but when you came to land it wasn't quite what isa planned so you deployed the best technology from 2004 but that didn't stop you getting all the data you went for The newsrooms of the BBC resounded with the echo of presenters wrestling with these words chur chim cherry chum chim chur chim jim turny Tim, Tim and a Menko's Nailed it We watched with rising horror As your batteries ran cold Your solar panels It turns out don't work so well Down a hole Now the only true space cowboys are Jamiroquai and you And maybe Bruce Willis too Like a miracle You woke up when the sun came into view So you used the last of your battery life to send a tweet Which of us wouldn't So sleep well, my little filet You fulfilled your destiny You rocked that rock and that's how you roll